For many experienced travelers, going to all seven continents is an important part of their bucket list. With the current climate changes, I felt that it was important to visit Antarctica while it maintains its pristine beauty. Join me as I describe my adventure through Drake's Passage and along the Antarctic Peninsula. Welcome back, everyone, to the next episode of the Marvels and Mishaps of Travel. If you tuned in last time, you'll know that Jessica took us uh, to Argentina with her. However, that was just the preview to the rest of her trip, which, of course, was a cruise to Antarctica. So she's going to describe to us in detail her journey, all the ups and downs as we embark on this once-in-a-lifetime experience. Thank you, Monica. Yeah, and, you know, Going to Antarctica, everybody always asks me, why are you going to Antarctica? Because <laughs> it sounds cold. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, funny enough, uh, it was actually colder in D.C. the same week I was in Antarctica. Figures. But, but that's besides the point. Um, so part of why I picked actually going to Antarctica is that in 2019, when my cousin and I were on another little trip to Minnesota, going to some national parks, she just dropped this idea of, Hey, wouldn't it be cool if we went to Antarctica? And I think she was kind of kidding because the cruises there are like $10,000 a pop sometimes. Um, And I don't think she really wanted to spend that much money to go. Um, But I started looking into going to Antarctica, and I realized that it was something I actually wanted to see. It's an incredibly unique experience. There's so much natural beauty there. It's completely serene. Um, You know, there's very little there to actually disturb it. There's not a lot of people, right? I mean, it's really just the nature preserved. Pretty much, yeah. You're just there basically with the people you go with. And if you're lucky to go to a research center, then um, you can also meet a few people Mm. that way. But it's such a unique attraction and it's really a worthwhile place to go. Um, And so I was actually able able to talk her into coming with me along with a few friends. Wow. Um, And then as far as how we actually picked a company in a ship, of course, the price was a factor. I know I mentioned minimum a lot of them are 10k and and most of them are even more um we were actually able to find one for less than that and you know you do share a room with people i was able to share mm-hmm. with her um and you do kind of want to keep in mind the vessel you're going on cuz that's no easy trip just like you're not just crossing it's not river. your luxury cruise line right <laughs> yeah. like, this is like an expedition yeah. type of thing it's not like a yeah yeah, you're not going to have like the casino or the bingo, you know, like it's going to be. Yeah, none of that was there. Um, and it, it was entirely an expedition vessel. Like this ship could correct itself from a 60 degree angle, which while we didn't need it to, was actually really nice to know because once you actually get on Drake's Passage, which is right between the uh, Cape Horn, the southern tip of South America and mm-hmm. the Antarctic Peninsula, 
you realize very fast why they had to build the Panama Canal because going around that, not only is it, of course, more time consuming, but it's incredibly disruptive. Hmm. Um, You know, the days that we were on Drake's Passage, we actually got lucky. They said we had the the best weather they had ever had. um, And the boat was still kind of turning back and forth a little bit for 24 hours straight at a time. So that was an experience. The first thing that popped into my mind when you said like a 60 degree, what was it? 60 degree angle. 60 degree angle. Correct. I was thinking Titanic and icebergs, right? I'm thinking, oh gosh, if there was like something that, you know, they hadn't expected or something in the water that they had to avoid to avoid like sinking the ship. I mean, I had those whole like Titanic played out in my head just (laughs) That's your reference point, yeah. Right. It's the only time I've ever, like, think thought about, like, ships and icebergs. Uh, I mean, was that ever a, a danger or was it more of just, like, getting through the passage? Uh, so we did go by a lot of icebergs. Um, mm. But I don't think we really were in danger of hitting any major icebergs. I know, you know, the the vessel we were on could have broken through most things. Okay. So, so that was just me like replaying the movie. I mean, that's like head. what 1910, <laughs> 1914 era. So I think the technology maybe wasn't up to snuff. Uh, <laughs> yeah, fair. Fair. <laughs> I hadn't really thought about that. <laughs> it's just Jack and Rose the whole time. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, so yeah, the, the ship that you go on is important. Um, and I will say there are, when you go down to that area when you're leaving from Ushuaia. I know one of my friends who was with me started looking up in the news some of the things that were happening on the ships that went to Antarctica. Um, And one of the ships, it was bigger than the one we were on, and it was more like a hotel than an expedition ship. And unfortunately, a rogue wave hit it. And a, a rogue wave is basically a sudden wave that's about twice the size oh of goodness. any wave that comes before it. And the the wave broke the big glass windows. They had big glass windows because it's more like a hotel ship. It broke the glass and it actually killed somebody. So oh we were nervous before this expedition. And, and we went into it thinking like all this horrible stuff is going to happen. Um, and so the cruise company that we chose is an expedition company. Uh, they are called Oceanwide Expeditions. And I would recommend them 100%. Mm. They have some of the highest ratings for polar expeditions. You know, they go both to the South Pole and the North Pole. Mm-hmm. Um, the entire process of everything we did was incredibly well coordinated, well streamlined. And I think it would I, have to be for safety yeah, reasons. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And, and they made sure... Um, at the beginning of the cruise to scare us about all the things that could happen. Like, they have to, right? Because otherwise it's going to happen. Uh, People are on vacation. They're not going to take things seriously. Right. And yeah, they're going to assume yeah. they're, you know, oh, we're having a great time and everything's taken care of. But this is this is, this is is leveled up, right? This is not a vacation. This is a yeah, this travel is experience. For sure. Um, and it's really important to take those expedition guides and leaders very seriously because they've seen it. They've done it. And mm-hmm. when they tell you that you need to do something a certain way or avoid something, you really have to listen. Because things, when they go wrong in Antarctica, they go wrong very fast. Oh, my goodness. I can only imagine. Yeah. Because you're – well, if you think about it, it's like um, some of the people who had actually done research there, they said everybody on their 
research center had to be able to learn all these new skills. They had to be each other's medic. They had to be Mm. each other's uh, pilot, like all these things. So you are, you have to create your own support system for survival on this continent. Um, It's, there's no yeah. hospital or anything like that that you could go find. The like people you're it. who you're with <laughs> is your everything, right? Yeah, yeah, 100%. Um, so, again, you know, when we were choosing who to go with, um, those ratings were really important, making sure we had that expedition vessel with um, a very well-equipped crew uh, was also important, and as well as the duration. Um, when you go to Antarctica, you spend at least two days each way on Drake's Passage. So you want to make sure you have enough time in between um, to actually do things. So I would say you need two days going each way um, and then probably a good five days uh, basically along the peninsula or along the continent mm. itself. Is that about um, what most of the expeditions run or like longer or shorter? I think so. Um most of the ones we saw, it was like anywhere from 10 to 14 days, but there are some that go 20 plus days, which to be honest, I don't think I would have actually mm-hmm. lasted on the ship for that long because the accommodation is pretty minimalistic. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, if you're trying to save money and then um, you're also trying to have a safe ride and you're trying to have all the food you want uh, on that ship, like you really, there's a lot of logistics that go into yeah. it. Um, so I do think... The one that we did, we had two days each way on the passage, and we had seven full days um, along the peninsula. And there were points where it actually felt like a little long. Um, hmm. But as the week progressed, we're like, no, this makes sense. Like, this is the the perfect amount of time. Um, and, you know, an- originally, we were supposed to be on a different vessel. We were supposed to be on a vessel called the Jansonius, but it got canceled because of some kind of fueling reason. And so they upgraded us to this other expedition on the Ortelius, which had another couple of days. Nice. Yeah. So that, that was lucky. Um, the main difference I noticed was when we were supposed to go on the Jansonius, we actually had to pay extra for some of the activities. Like we had to pay extra for kayaking and, and camping, which I'll talk about. Um, and, it sounds like, okay, well, Ortelius had those included, so that's better. But on the Jansonius, because we were paying for it, we would have been able to do it probably multiple times. Mm. Uh, whereas on the Ortelius, it's, they had to rotate everybody. So it was kind of like those extra activities you wanted to do, you only really got to do once. Um, but they did offer quite a, a wide variety of stuff to do. And mm-hmm. we, as I mentioned earlier, they told us we had the best weather they'd had on any expedition like we were able to go out every single day um which is not actually common like that's part of why you so, want to have at least the five seven days what what's yeah. considered good weather in Antarctica? Okay, so good, <laughs> good weather um it has it mostly has to do with the wind because um and they have this chart of all the different knots uh, of wind that you could be at and that you know they even is that like speeds like yeah that? so it's okay, like wind speed okay. yeah uh and and they showed us the level um of wind speed it would have to have to get to a hurricane and you know when we whenever we had dinner the expedition guides and leaders they'd actually come sit down with us and they'd tell us stories about other expeditions, mm. other experiences they had. Um, and there had been times where there were effectively hurricanes while they were going through this water and the ship 
was going side to That's side. So it's, I mean, yeah. I think you think about hurricanes and you think about like a tropical location and right. like, it's like warm, the whole you know, city like needs wind, evacuation. Yeah. I mean, I guess like if, if you win that high, I mean, but I guess in a hurricane in Antarctica, is it blowing snow around rather than rain? Um, so it depends on the time of year. I'd say it was actually when it was cold, it, it was just the ice you had to worry about more than anything. Uh, but it certainly could blow around a lot of snow. I know one of our expedition guides had done 18 months research in Antarctica and he actually got caught in what was called a whiteout because um, yeah. he was hiking through the middle of the continent and he fell in a crevasse, which is it's just a gap. It's right. basically an abyss. Like you don't know where it stops. And he was able to save himself with his pickaxes. He threw them against the side of this crevasse and was able to pull himself back up again. Cause you can't see mm. if it's a whiteout like Talk that. about near death experience. Yeah. Yeah. So it, I mean, he had a lot of really cool stories and like, he was one of the best natured people I'd ever met. Like he just had been through so much. that you're, He just laughs at everything. And you're just like, I'm okay, living on borrowed time. He's like, yeah. I'm on my 10th live. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Happy so to be he, here. He was one of my favorite people that we met on the, the whole thing. Um, so anyway, as far as other aspects of the accommodation, so I, I mentioned we were on the Ortelius. Um, the Ortelius could correct from 60 degrees. We had somebody on the ship who was a ship expert in case something went wrong. Um, as far as the internal entertainment, there was one main uh, one main room where people would gather for different events. And there was a very simplistic bar there. And it was right against... Um, as soon as you stepped outside, you were on the decks. So the Ortelius had like these very extensive decks, um, which was nice considering we had good weather. Cause most of the time, I think there was only like one or two days on Drake's passage. We, we weren't allowed on the decks cause they were slippery. Um, and the, the boat was tilting. Uh, so you can imagine what might happen. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> yeah. hang on yeah. for dear life. Pretty much. Yeah. So we had that one main room where we would gather for social events. Um, there was a lecture room in the basement, but the days when we were on Drake's passage, most people felt more sick down there because there weren't really any windows. Mm. Um, and then the, the dining hall was pretty big. They, anytime we were on Drake's passage, they'd plate, uh, they'd serve us plated meals, whereas normally it was a buffet. And the, surprisingly, the food was very good the whole time. And I don't know how that happened because <laughs> you're like how is this fresh um and like you still have this like fresh seeming salad and you're like i don't know how that happened um so they figured awesome. something out and um they also had desalinization tanks so they were able to pump up the salt water and uh effectively ex kind of extract the salt out of it mm. um so that you could drink it but I remember the first two days, I think one of their desalinization tanks was kind of broken. So I could I could taste some of the water was salty, but it wasn't salty enough that like it would actually dehydrate you. It was just like not the most pleasant. <laughs> right here. <laughs> yeah, you're like, this doesn't taste great, but it's okay. Um, yeah, so those were some of the key components of the ship. There was also the bridge where you would actually go upstairs and see all the navigational tools of the ship. And you'd be up there with the, the guy um, who was controlling the ship. Mm -hmm. So that was really interesting. Sometimes they'd close it if it was a really windy day, but it was um, mostly pretty cool to be able to see all those different navigational tools that they used. And I would say one of the biggest challenges we had, at least for me personally, um, 
is that there were about a hundred people on the ship and another like 30 crew members or so. And, and there were some people who only came out at night. So some of the crew members, we didn't even see half the time because they'd have like some kind of drill and we'd be like, who is that? Like, <laughs> they're probably working like the graveyard shift because you can't yeah. have people like up 24 right. hours a day. You know, exactly. like, that makes sense. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. So there were some people who were like, who did, where did this person come from? <laughs> uh, <laughs> and what I found uh, challenging about that is when you have um, a, a group of people confined to a small space for an extended period some of those people get a little bit clicky uh mm-hmm. i think of that as kind of like this social defense mechanism people have for when other people are in their space they're a little bit clicky um but as the week went on everybody got nicer they had more to talk about um you know people started to bond a little bit more so it ended up being fine it was just my friends and i noticed it at first we we're like okay this is a, an interesting social scene because yeah, yeah, it's all these it's, people who can. I think yeah. it takes an experienced traveler in in a situation like that to kind of know, okay, this is going to happen, and to sort of fight against it by being the one yeah. to be like, "Hi, I'm Monica. Where are you guys from? How are you doing yeah. things so far?" And like breaking the ice because it. I have been on tour groups like that too. Like you know, you're stuck kind of like the same, like 50, 60 people. Yeah, yeah. You're and trying to stay a little bit in your. You're comfort either zone, with a group yeah. that doesn't talk to any. You're like don't meet anybody or. There's tons of people who are like, oh, I've done this a bunch of times and it's so much better if you just like break the ice and start talking to people. And then, you know, you yeah. end up finding more in common than you think. But I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I can it's, see how it's – and it's – you know, you're in a, in a totally new nervous situation, so. Yeah. It was like not everybody knew what to expect. Um, and then we were all – there were some people I talked to. Like Most people on these – cruises were also very avid travelers like myself so i was like okay we have a lot to talk yeah. about but it was almost like this covetous thing like they're like this is my thing like i travel what do you do <laughs> i also travel how many countries have you been to <laughs> pretty much yeah i felt like i had this uh back and forth like i was mm. I was, I was being challenged by how many countries had you been to yet? Because, uh, you know, this was like the final bucket list item for most people. So I thought that was kind of funny. Uh, but, you know, as I mentioned, people got nicer throughout the week. They realized we had more in common. Uh, they they kind of, you know, didn't take themselves as seriously as things went mm. on. Um, so it ended up being a lot well, of fun. And you're also yeah. going through this, like, really kind of monumental life experience yeah, together. Yeah, little, you can't help but like feel a connection there. A little on edge too. Yeah. yeah. So it's it's a an interesting tango. But um so yeah that that was hard for me at first, but it got better. Um and then the other thing about the ship, so interestingly enough, they had a smoking section. Uh you just weren't allowed to smoke out on the decks when they were filling up the fuel of, they had what are called Zodiac boats. Yeah, that um, makes sense. Yeah, yeah. But there was <laughs> there was this one person who was always out there. And, and when he, whenever he walked around, he always smelled like smoke. And I remember my cousin walking by him and she came up to me and she's like, did he even bring enough cigarettes for this trip? And I just thought it was like, the sassiest commentary <laughs> you better um, ration them out because you can't yeah, run down to the 7-eleven because you can't replenish right sure um but yeah i just thought that was a funny comment she had made um so that you know they do accommodate people who have various habits or needs um and then we did have a doctor on board um interestingly enough the the doctor was there as a volunteer 
Hmm. Um, and normally if they, they didn't, they weren't required to have a doctor. So normally the captain would execute any kind of health need that came up. Hmm. So we were lucky enough to have a doctor and she was super nice. We had a great time talking to her. Um, and then again, as I mentioned, the food was actually very good and I still can't explain why. Um, but it was, (laughs) and the, the expedition, uh, company that we booked through, they were based out of, uh, the Netherlands and a lot of the crew was actually from the UK. Um, so a lot of the food we had was influenced by those areas. And then a good chunk of the crew, I think had actually come from the Philippines. So, you Hmm. know, we also had food influences from there as well. Um, So that was like a a nice mix of things going on as far as, you know, fusion action. Yeah. Yeah. And eating Filipino food in Antarctica. I would be so confused. Yeah. You're just like, huh? (laughs) (laughs) So, um, so I was pleased with that. And I, I, like I said, I wasn't expecting the food to be good. So I even brought all these like mini hot sauces with me and I didn't need to use them. So that was nice. Yeah. But as far as what the expedition offered for activities, we did, Every day there were at least two things going on. So the the seven days we were on the Antarctic Peninsula, we just pretty much went up and down the peninsula. Um, they made sure to schedule something in the morning and something in the evening or, mm-hmm. or late afternoon, not the evening, which I'll talk about the time and the, the daylight a little bit later because that makes this a little more complicated. <laughs> um, but we did... Everybody had the opportunity to do two things every day and we often stopped on the peninsula we would take these zodiac boats which are like these little raft boats that have a motor we'd take the zodiac boats onto the peninsula they'd help us off we'd put on snowshoes and we typically would go see penguins and this became a very common thing this was like the the default activity um and then fine by me yeah (laughs) i mean like penguins again sure yeah yeah we're like yay penguins oh they're super cute and um we also had the opportunity to go kayaking, as I mentioned before, which for us ended up being a really cool experience. I'll talk about some of the highlights later. Camping. So going on this trip, I told people, I was like, yeah, I'm going camping in Antarctica. It's not just I'm going to Antarctica. No, I'm going camping in Antarctica. And it's without a tent, um, which (laughs) sounds insane. And (laughs) And I'm proving uh, what a badass I am. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm doing it to prove a point. Um, No, but the expedition leader, she had been many times, but she kept saying, she's like, I don't know why you guys want to go dig your own graves. And so we we got onto um, the – they took us on an island. And basically when you camp, you dig a hole in the snow – you put down yoga mats and then you get a big sleeping bag with a liner and you're just in that sleeping bag all night, which I mean, it's, you basically get 23 hours or so of daylight. So it doesn't really feel like night. You just kind of have to like create darkness in your sleeping bag. Uh, <laughs> but it, anyway, I'll get more in, into in that a later. Hole. Yeah. In a-, in a hole in the snow. Um, <laughs> and like when you go to put that hole back the next day, by that point, the snow has frozen over again. So it's a little bit tricky with the little uh, shovels they give you. So camping, that was one of the activities. Another one was mountaineering, and this is one I had wanted to do, but I think as I mentioned in the Argentina episode, I actually had a knee injury, and I figured that this was a little too high risk to try and push my injury. I think if I had to suddenly stabilize myself, if I was sliding, 
that could easily be a problem. Mm. Um, and when I talked to the mountaineering guide later, he said, yes, you made the right choice. <laughs> so Dang. I avoided that. Um, but it certainly looked cool. And he had a lot of interesting and crazy adventures that he had told us about that I just wanted to keep hearing more about it. Um, and then the days where it was too icy to actually go on the peninsula, we had Zodiac cruises. They'd take us on these little motorized raft boats around the different harbors. Uh, and I, when I say a harbor, there's of course no dock. It's just, you're going around icebergs. There's rocks. Sometimes you come across a seal. Uh, we did see like a, a ship that had burned down. So there was like hmm. a rusted burned ship that was half sunken into the water. So that was kind of cool. It's always reassuring. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think it was a little old. I think they had set it on fire on purpose. I can't remember the reason, but I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that later. Um, and then we also had a navigational workshop. Uh, basically they had a sonar technology. We, we went into a region of water that had not yet been mapped. Um, so, you know, of course, a satellite could see the overhead topology, but as far as uh, the water, like what, what was in the seafloor, uh, that had not been mapped yet. And so we had a sonar technology that did some floor mapping for us, um, but the, the technology was a little bit limited. It, basically, the signal it sent out was just straight down. So if it hit something and the sonar signal just like a sound wave that comes mm -hmm. back up through the water. Mm -hmm. If it came straight back up, you couldn't always tell what it hit. You're like, okay, is it floor or something else? Whereas um, some more sophisticated navigational technology sends out a broader signal so that there's more of a, a wide area. And based mm -hmm. on the, the bounce back rate, it can tell what kind of material it's actually wow. hitting. Yeah. So that, that really was interesting. Advanced, so, yeah. yeah. So they, they talked a lot about that and we did have that set up on one of the ships. It was just kind of like a, a cool activity to do one day. Um, and then the other thing we had were a bunch of lectures. Um, so every expedition guide that was on that ship was an expert in a different area. So we had, um, you know, we had a marine biologist, uh, the expedition leader loved penguins. So she talked a lot about that. Um, one of the expedition guides, he had studied, I think it was like Icelandic history. Um, mm. And he actually talked about, this isn't Icelandic, but he talked about a past expedition called the, the Belgica, where, you know, this was when everybody was trying to explore Antarctica. And there was this one ship that was a little overzealous and they went through um, a day when the ice had broken up and then the ice froze back around them and they were stuck there a whole winter. So that was an interesting... Holy moly. And then one of the expedition guides was also a cartographer. Um, he told us about a famous cartographer, James Cook, from the 1700s, who uh, really was thorough with using, you know, basic geometry uh, in figuring out the cartography of the earth. And some of his maps are still used today. So that really is interesting as far as how accurate it actually was. Um, so I'm going to move on to some of our ex actual experiences, uh, including the, the weather and some of the highlights we had. Uh, so moving on from what they offered, the weather, of course, was a major factor in our ability to do these different activities. And, you know, just to give you more insight into the experience going to and from Antarctica, I mentioned the boat was kind of tilting for 24 hours plus straight. And 
to some people, that sounds like a nightmare. There were people you didn't see for a few days just because they were getting sick. Mm. Um, and the doctor on board did provide us with, you could put this patch behind your ear that prevented you uh, from getting sick because, you know, your ear affects your orientation. Like you have... Like your inner ear is yeah, like your center yeah. of gravity and stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that, that helps some people. I just took Dremamine and I was okay. Um, and so that, that helped a lot, but I do remember in the middle of the night, everything in the room was bolted down except this like one chair and that flipped over in the middle of the night and we're like, we're just going to leave it. Um, and the other thing that was really challenging was that there was light for about 23 hours and when I say there was light for 23 hours, I don't mean it was straight up ahead. Like it wasn't, it wasn't like noon every, uh, all hours mm. of the day. It was like we were rotating uh, and we got close to sunset, but our sunset was a bit like the sun would go behind the mountains for a bit as though it were dawn or dusk and then it would pop back up again. Wow. So we would be up at the bar uh, area or we'd be in that, you know, that common room attached to the bar and you'd look out and it would be very light out. Like it's like maybe 4 PM and you look down and it's 1130 PM. Wow. So that could be a little disorienting your, your sense of you're how like natural rhythms are all off. Like you're, yeah, 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 exactly. So you're not really sure where you are mentally as far as like how awake should I be right now and the, they yeah. had a coffee machine I mean we just had daylight room. savings time end and it's like a one hour change and I'm like right. what's and happening I'm like hungry yeah. at the wrong time and stuff <laughs> <laughs> but- yeah and that's effectively what happened here we just like were completely dysregulated and the good thing about the ship was that it had it didn't have those big windows it had these tiny portholes where you had a metal covering and then you could draw a very dark curtain over it so you could simulate darkness perfectly fine um for people who had to share a room and that was most people because again this is a very expensive, expensive voyage yeah. um the rooms were actually kind of small as far as sharing i know you know my cousin and i it was just the two of us but um my other friend who came along was in a three-person room and it it was like only one person could really be moving around the room at a time so that was a little bit challenging for him um but the trip was again super fun uh i'm going to talk about some of the highlights now um as i mentioned earlier the expedition team everything was well coordinated they had actually just met each other like a few hours before we took (laughs) off. So the expedition leader had maybe two or three of the same people she had had from the previous voyage. And then the rest of the team was just kind of like plopped in front of her a few hours before, and they just had to make it work and they made it work unbelievably well. And you would feel like there was just a lot of things that just fell right into place. Yeah. Yeah. And they, they just would, like you would not have guessed that they had just come together and just had to figure things out. So that was very impressive um, the way they were able to streamline that. And what made it even more interesting, I mentioned that each of the expedition guides was an expert on a different area, Uh, but they were all very passionate about what they did. Um, They were passionate about making sure we treated Antarctica and, and the animals that we were sort of interacting with, but not entirely. Uh, they made sure that we did what we were supposed to do and we stuck within um, the IATO rules. So uh, there's this organization called IATO, which regulates 
what you can and cannot do on Antarctica. And um, it has gotten more strict over the years, you know, because mm. their entire purpose is conservation. Sure. And one of a, a few of the limitations that we came across that had not been in place previously were that a, we were not allowed to actually go to the research centers because of COVID. Uh, you know, okay. they, they didn't want COVID to basically come to these researchers. That would be a big problem. Um, and then there was also, um, a bird flu going around. And so we hmm. couldn't let the penguins get within like five meters of us. Normally they can walk right up to you, but this time we couldn't, cause we can actually spread that bird flu for them. Sure. Um, that was, yeah. um, that was about the same rule in the Galapagos. Everything was yeah. about like five meters, um, away. So, you know, I, I don't know if I have any Galapagos pictures yet up on the Instagram, um, page of the Marvels and Mishaps of Travel, but, uh, every, everything you're just like a lit, you're in the shot with them, but like, there's definitely some distance. I think yeah, it's just some safety for both of you, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't want to get that sickness either. So it's completely mm-hmm. understandable. Um, so yeah, the expedition team, as I mentioned, they made the trip amazing. And another thing that we really enjoyed was the kayaking. My cousin and I were on a two-person kayak just coming around this iceberg. You could see the like light blue glow under the water. And just as we were coming around, these seals popped up out of the water. And I, I completely spazzed out. I was like, ah! Well, you're like basically at eye level with them if you're in a kayak. That's incredible. Yeah. And it was so cool because they like, as they were coming up out of the water, they were blowing water out of their nose and you could like see their nostrils expand and contract. So close. You were so close. Yeah, we were very close. So that was a really cool experience. You know, they got us all geared up for that. um, And we didn't. There wasn't a lot we really had to be experts on to do this. It was just like, okay, they know what they're doing. We just follow directions and it was really Mm -hmm. cool. We got to see all these icebergs um, and go by some seals. So that was neat. Um, Camping, you know, as I already mentioned, it's the you're digging your own grave concept. uh, But (laughs) nobody actually had a problem. They did warn us quite a bit about frostbite. And that's reasonable. Um, And even though they warned us, I was a little bit, uh, I can say, I wasn't really mindful of what I was doing because I had bundled up so much. And when I got in my sleeping bag, I was so warm that I actually forgot to put my gloves back on. Um, And my my gloves were, I mean, my my hands were in the sleeping bag. So like, they were fine. But when I woke up in the morning, they felt numb. And I thought in that moment, I was like, I think I just ruined my life because I work in IT and I can't not have fingers. Um, oh, my God. That's <laughs> yeah, like so- <laughs> one of those and this is how I die moments. <laughs> so I, so I was like, yeah, I just set myself up to lose the worst possible body part. Um, oh, God. Luckily, when I put my gloves back on and kind of, I think I put my fingers against my body and and they warmed up pretty quickly so that was a a false alarm but I was just like yeah but that definitely goes through your mind (laughs) good job Jess Um, I can laugh about it now sure we were not laughing at the moment I was not laughing then I was like oh no oh no oh no um and then the other thing you know because they had brought us out to we were on what's called 
Paradise Island was the name of, you know, they, they had all these names for these places where you're like, nobody's here. So I don't, I don't know where these names are coming from. This is how they <laughs> identify the region. Uh, so we went camping on Paradise Island, which was full of snow. And we dug our quote unquote own graves. Um, and we put our yoga mats down, slept in them. And they were very concerned that in the middle of the night, we ha- might have to go to the bathroom. Um, and you cannot go to the bathroom on the snow in Antarctica. You're not supposed to do that, right? That's an IATO uh, violation. So mm-hmm. they had these mini, they had this like one mini portable toilet that they brought onto the island with us. And, you know, they brought like toilet paper or whatever. And the entire time leading up to camping, they basically shamed us out of using the toilet because they didn't want to have to bring it back up with stuff in it, which you can't really blame them. Um, but also, but like, like, what's the alternative? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. There is a, you just hold it. Um, so they, they were like, funny enough, beforehand, they were like, make sure you squeeze everything out before we leave. And I was like, okay. Limit uh, liquids. Yeah, limit Jeez. liquids. And I was I like, wouldn't I wouldn't be able like, to do that. I get up like twice in the middle of the night. I, know. I wouldn't be able to do like yeah. hold it all night long. Forget it. It's, it was rough. But um, I mean, I had been cold camping before. Actually, one time my backpacking friend and I went in the Smoky Mountains. It got to sub-freezing weather. And it was a similar scenario. I was like, I'm cold. I have to go to the bathroom, but I don't want to get up right now. Um, so you you do kind of just figure out how to hold it. Um, so that, mm. that was fun. But I think, you know, I'm sure there were a few people who still ended up having to use that portable toilet. Um, all right. And then other activities, other highlights. <clears throat> I talked about the snowshoeing and seeing penguins. So there were three types of penguins that we actually saw. Uh, they're some of the smaller penguins. We unfortunately didn't see um, the big ones that em- the Emperor. Escaped. Emperor. Yeah. I was yeah. going to say king. And I was like, no, that doesn't sound right. Emperor penguins. We didn't get to see those. Uh, those would be more on like South Georgia Island. Um, yeah. Or, I, I think, think they were on the endangered Africa. species list for some time. I think. Yeah. They must be. Um, and, and I'll talk a little bit about some of the environmental uh, issues in Antarctica as well mm-hmm. that are affecting the penguins there. But it was really interesting to see the penguins. We saw the three types, um, the chin straps, the Adelie penguins, and the Gen 2 penguins. And they were all really cute. They're about like foot and a half tall each. Um, they, this is a little unnerving. Uh, there was an article by a guy who studied Adelie penguins. His name was George Levick. And he referred to the penguins as sexually depraved. Um, And, you know, they they talked about this in when they were doing a presentation on penguins. And it was kind of humorous because, like, when you think of penguins, you're like, oh, you're this cute little animal. And then there's this, like, juxtaposition where you're like, actually they're kind of gross. But anyway, um, another thing about these Adelie penguins or or even, you know, the the Gen 2 and the chin strap is when you see them, they're often huddled together in a red patch. And you're like, okay, what's that red patch? And they're actually, um, they eat krill. So it's red because they're sitting in their own poop. Uh, So yeah, so it's a little smelly when you actually. No go wonder see they're that. sexually depraved. Who wants to have sex after that? Yeah, but, <laughs> um, but the the penguins they were interesting, 
And they, one of my friends got this video of a penguin. He was hopping up these rocks to get to where his buddies were. And once he hopped up the rocks, they all started, started like cheering. They were like, ah, ah, ah. Like they were excited that their, their friend had showed up. <laughs> cheering each rock. other on. Yeah, they're cheering each other on. So they're, they're really interesting to watch. And they're really funny. They like collecting rocks. It's like a form of, um, like a mating ritual where the male will give the female a rock uh but because they're kind of possessive of these little stones while a penguin is going to steal a stone from another penguin another penguin's probably stealing one of his stones so that's usually (laughs) how they operate (laughs) yeah it just got passed around um so that was kind of neat and and we did learn a lot about penguins they have they're able to regulate their heart rate and breathing really well. So they can slow down their heart rate. They don't get the bends when they deep dive the way we do. So the bends is like when you have to deal with the the pressure adjustment of going deep underwater and affects the uh, blood flow rate in your vessels. They don't seem to have that issue because they can adjust their heart rate. Um, They can hold their breath longer because they have higher levels of hemoglobin. So hemoglobin is actually what, carries oxygen uh, throughout your body. Um, And then they also can constrict their own blood vessels. So they don't lose as much heat as we do, um, like in their feet. And I guess they don't really have hands, but they don't lose it in their feet. Um, And the other thing is they don't, you know how like when we exhale, you can see the water vapor. Well, they don't actually lose any heat when they're exhaling the way we do, they, it recirculates in their body. So that's part of why they're actually able to tolerate um, the cold a lot mm-hmm. better than us. And, you know, with the climate change and things heating up, it's really not good for them because that's not what they're adapted to. They're adapted to these to colder the cold, environments. Right. Um, it also affects their ability to feed, right? They're, they feed in the water. They're excellent swimmers. I would say, so penguins are really well adapted for water. They're awkward on land and then they can't fly at all. Um, and so these penguins, in order to get food, they need to be able to get to the water. Well, with these cycles of the ice breaking and melting, you know, in the winter, Antarctica, I think, doubles in size normally with just with mm-hmm. the amount of ice it has. Um, but the penguins have trouble getting <clears throat> back to the ocean when the ice is all, you know, broken up. It's it's not really forming back the way it's supposed to. So that's a major issue issue for them. And that's actually wiped out entire colonies of penguins oh, just yeah. trying to go feed. So, yeah, that's a big problem for them as well. So basically where the ice is breaking up, yeah, I mean, there's water the, underneath it, but that's not like where the fish and the food is. Exactly. It's just empty water. So they yeah. have to like cross the rest of the ice. Yeah, they have to, they have to like migrate. To get to like the actual like ocean ocean where other wildlife is. Exactly. And there isn't a lot of biodiversity on Antarctica. So they're kind of limited in what they have to, to feed off of. Mm-hmm. Another thing we had to be mindful of is when we were snowshoeing some depending on the size of your boot actually um so the the snowshoeing prevented this from happening but if you did not snowshoe and you were walking through the snow your foot would go through the snow it's usually about a foot deep and it would create this gaping hole and they actually referred to those gaping holes as penguin graves because penguins don't have the agility Mm. to get out of a hole they're very awkward they would walk a few feet, trip over, fall on their stomachs, sit there for a few seconds, get up, walk another few feet, trip again, get up, 
you know, it's they're very um, clumsy mm. on land. And so also you know, adorable, not, but like not good yeah. when they're stuck in a boot. Shape yeah, you hole. don't you don't want to leave holes behind. So one of the things um, the expedition team had to do and they, they tried to get some of the uh, the passengers to help out was we'd have to go back and fill in some of these holes we had created with our muck boots that they gave us. Um, so before you leave the penguin uh, topic, Jess, you st- you told me a story a little while back about a warning that you were given by the crew that based on what somebody else had done with one of the penguins. Yeah. So, um, I mean, this is very, I'd say this is a pretty unusual thing to do, but somebody has done it. One of the cruise ships, and this was on a completely different company. It was a totally different company. They had found a penguin in the shower of one of the rooms. So a passenger, <laughs> I know. Yeah, it's really bad. Like a part of you is like, this is hilarious, but no, it's actually really bad for the penguin. A passenger, I think took a penguin back in their bag and they brought it onto their ship and hid it in the shower and the housekeeping found the penguin. Um, so they, you know, of course had to let it overboard so that it could go back to its natural habitat. But it's also like, what are you planning to do with the penguin? Right. Don't I smuggle mean, animals. I feel like <laughs> there's some like crazy, like children's book or something about like penguins living in a shower. And like, did you honestly yeah. think that was a real thing or like, what were you going to do when you got back home with your penguin? Like, just blows so my bad. mind. Yeah. The reason we have these insane rules is because somebody actually did it Someone once. actually did it. There's always somebody who ruins it for everybody else. Like, you can pretty much always count on that whenever you're trying to do something Work. fun. But, um, yeah, so that, that was disappointing to find out. Um, but, you know, I think most people seem to respect the penguins. They give them their distance. Um, so, the, you know, the snowshoeing and the seeing the penguins was a, a really good part of the trip. It, when we didn't have other activities to do, it also was just like a nice thing to default to. So, um, and then another highlight of when we actually got on shore, sometimes with our snowshoes is there were some shelters along the peninsula that we were allowed to go into, you know, we didn't get to go to these research centers, but the shelters kind of gave you an interesting insight into what needed to be available if you were going to try to survive, as I talked about, like a whiteout. So there was a whiteout on Antarctica. You can't see anything. You need to go in the shelter. Um, So they had this like giant vat for melting snow for your water, um, you know, to, so that you could like cook with water, Mm -hmm. et cetera. And they had a lot of very, very preserved foods. I, some of them were probably from like 1960 something. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was looking at it. And I was like, I don't think I want to stay here, but it's nice to know it's there. Um, and then they had snowshoes in the shelter. They had various tools that you would need to survive. So that was really interesting to get a sneak peek at um, while we were there. And then some of the other highlights as well. I talked about we'd go out on the Zodiac boats. We got to see burned shipwrecks. Uh, There were seals. I know somebody was able to spot a leopard seal, which that was Mm. kind of a rare spotting. I missed that particular event, but I did see some pictures of the leopard seal, and they're very beautiful. Um, I say it counts. I think it counts. Yeah, I think it counts. I was there. (laughs) Even if I didn't see it. Um, And then there were some other um, seals that we saw. There were whales, wettle seals. And then there were these other seals called crab eaters. And we talked a lot about why they were called crab eaters 
because they don't eat crab or any crustaceans. So it was derived from a word from another language. I don't remember the details on it, but there were cool seals to actually see. Um, And then again, the, the beautiful icebergs. I talked about the sonar equipment that we used for navigation. And then one of the nights that we were on the cruise ship, they scheduled an outdoor barbecue. I talked about how the decks on the ship were pretty extensive and there was a helicopter pad on the back of the ship. So they Mm. set up all these tables with our barbecue food um, on the helicopter pad of the ship. That particular day, because of, you know, the, the 23 hours of daylight, my circadian rhythm was a little bit messed up and I almost napped through the entire dinner. Um, so I was I was in the room and I was sleeping probably around four or five p.m. And my cousin's like, "Okay, it's dinner time. I'm going to go up there. Do you want to come up?" And I'm like, "No, I'm just going to stay here." So she goes up to the helicopter pad and she talks to our friend Alex and um, some of the, our other friends who we had made on the ship were up there with them as well. And I'm sleeping, and then about thirty minutes later, my cousin comes back down and she goes, "Jess, there's a dance party." Alex said, I have to come down here and get you. And you're not allowed to miss it. <laughs> so. wow. If I if I know you at all, Jess, you probably jumped out of bed and I ran did. to I the deck. The I did. <laughs> so um for those of you who don't know, which I don't think I've talked about this at all, I grew up as a dancer. Uh, my mom was a dance aerobics instructor. Whenever we had family get-togethers, we'd actually have a dance party in the living room, like a bunch of lunatics. And, and, um, you know, whenever there was any kind of dance party or a dance team, I usually made sure I was a part of it. I get really into it. Um, And, you know, sometimes I kind of feel like I'm the center of the show when I'm dancing. It's just kind of this like, thing that I, I find creative outlet for yeah, you. Yeah, yeah exactly it's my and, and I and I can vouch she's very good thank you <laughs> um so yeah so they they tell me it's dance party night up at the barbecue so we go up I'm like trying to wake up and drinking my diet coke they give me get a little bit of a caffeine bounce and um the music starts and like the expedition crew it's, it's kind of for them too right because they're they're on this ship for days at a time and They'll be on Drake's Passage two days, stop back in Ushuaia, Argentina for like a day, and then they're back out again. So they need these outlets as well. Mm. Um, and we notice that they're getting into it. And, you know, as we're finishing dinner, they try to get us into it too. And then I start dancing and they're, they started filming me uh, at various points throughout the night. And this one guy who was one of the expedition guides, he's from Scotland and he loved wearing his kilt. Uh, and so, and he told us, he told us, he's like, I'm not wearing my kilt. So, you know, I'm Scottish. I'm wearing my kilt. So, you know, I'm not British. And, <laughs> and he, the whole time we're like, okay, he's like probably a few steps away from an HR violation, but we thought this was funny. Um, so he's out there on this helicopter pad on the cruise ship in Antarctica in his kilt. And this man's like in his late seventies and he's like in amazing shape. And as I'm, as I'm dancing and people are cheering me on, he starts having a dance off with me and um, that was captured as well. So there's some funny pictures of that. I'll have to show you. And you can kind of tell. You can head over to the Instagram page of the Marvels and Mishaps of Travel. (laughs) We'll have those up when we release this episode. 
Definitely. Um, so th- that was a really fun experience that we had, a really good memory. I mean, it, it wasn't Antarctica specific, but we made it Antarctica specific. So that, that was <laughs> I mean, a I really think the fact time. that it happened on a helicopter pad was yeah. probably the, as the Antarctica piece there. Right. And there's like these uh, mountain, these like snowy mountains in the background. You're just like, what is going on in this photo? <laughs> <laughs> I love those moments, though, that just like happen and they're like these amazing memories and it's nothing that you could have planned. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It just, um, it fell together beautifully. So yeah. that was a, a really good time. So a lot of people after that event uh, actually came up and talked to me. They People who hadn't really like gone out of their way to talk mm. to me before they started, you know, it was a good thing to like have a conversation starter about. So that, that was another nice thing about it was we had more as the week progressed, there was more to talk about. Uh, we were able to make more connections. So that, that was really cool. So on on the trip back through Drake's Passage at the end of our voyage, we were lucky enough to have a very calm day on Drake's Passage. And the reason that's significant is because there are four types of orca that you might be able to see somewhere along Antarctica or Drake's Passage. But there's one in particular that's very rare um, and that had only ever been sighted twice. And it's what's called a type D. And they label the different types kind of based on the positioning of that white eye patch. Mm. Um, So even if you see one, you might not know exactly which one it is. So we had seen a few orcas along the course of the trip. I know there was one night, it was the very first night we saw an orca they were doing a, a presentation in, in the bar area. Um, and somebody w- was whispering that there was a whale outside. So people started moving to the windows and it started to get kind of crazy. And, you know, somebody, one of the expedition guides picked up the microphone and he goes, ladies and gentlemen, and I'm expecting him to say, calm down, but he goes, we have Orca. And like, everyone just <laughs> went wild. And like, the drinks were falling off the bar. I think I knocked over somebody's drink to go find one of these orcas. And like, this was the, the type a orca that we went and saw this, this first time. So coming back from Drake's passage, we have this calm day and we actually spot a type D orca, which had only ever been spotted twice. And part of why they're so difficult to spot is because they only live in very rough waters and we just got a calm day on the rough waters and it was amazing. So somebody took a picture and it's actually on Oceanwide Expedition's website where we spotted a type D orca. So cool. Like the third time ever. Yeah. Um, and they're, they're different. I think they're considered like different species of orca, the type A, B, C, and D. So, um, so yeah, that, that was really neat. On our way back, they put out barf bags along the hallways oh. of the ship so that, it was like for your convenience, <laughs> if you needed to suddenly throw up, they just had like the barf bags along the hallway. So that was kind of comical. I thought that was amusing. Um, and then we arrived back in Ushuaia around midnight one night. We all got our internet service back. The The Wi-Fi on board didn't even really work that well. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were excited to get our internet service back after 12 days. Um, and then, you know, the next morning we disembarked um, and it was, it was just amazing, you know, saying goodbye to people, keeping in touch with people. Uh, every, everything about it was just a, a really good trip. So I'm, I'm very happy we ended up going. 
It, it sounds like a once-in-a-lifetime experience. I mean, it maybe for someone who isn't quite as outdoorsy or is really prone to seasickness, it might be something to kind of consider. But at the same time, if you are kind of willing to sort of go through some of those more yeah. challenging moments, it sounds like the reward is is much, much higher than the risk. Definitely. And to me, that's part of what makes something fulfilling, right? Is because you do have to get out of your comfort zone a little bit to really hit that sweet spot with an experience. So um, I think it's worthwhile if you're if you're wondering whether or not you're going to like it, um, it doesn't hurt to try. So I, I think it's a really good experience to have. Well, Jess, thanks so much for sharing all of your incredible stories. I mean, I, I really just felt like I was right along there with you. Uh, to all of our listeners, thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you in a couple weeks with the next episode of The Marvels and Mishaps of Travel.